please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41. We will study verses 1 through 20 together. You can find uh, this passage in your Bibles on page 601 if you have a pew Bible there. You will need to have chapter 41 open. I will only read a few of the verses to begin, but all 20 verses will be our, our target this morning by God's grace. And so please have your Bibles open and ready at Isaiah 41. Uh, initially, when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, he wrote it several years, many years, uh, before uh, the people of God were exiled to Babylon. They had come under duress because of Assyria. Assyria assimilated the northern kingdom, and they were lost. And they had this reprieve for a bit, but now Babylon is rising. You know, there's always a bigger fish. There's Assyria, then there's Babylon, then there's the Medes and the Persians. And so Isaiah is forecasting that the people of God will undergo discipline in exile for 70 years. And it's in the distant future because it won't even be during Isaiah's time. So he's given this revelation by God that will be utilized when the people of God are in exile in Babylon in the years to come. He even looks ahead to the next nation that's rising that was hardly even on the radar at at this point, the Persians. It's in our text. So here are words meant to bring comfort to a fearful people who were doubting God's presence. They were doubting God. Now what's interesting about chapter 41 is it begins not just addressing the Israelites, but the nations, showing how God, through Abraham, the promise made to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, is realized even in these times when there is an invitation of sorts given to the nations to come and listen to what God has to say. And then he focuses in on the people of God as the, as the chapter moves on. With that introduction, starting at verse 8, I will read from verse 8 to verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 41. Hear now God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. That the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created it. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, there are a great many things that cause us to fear. 
All too often we cling to securities that are not in any way secure. Please reassure us by your word this morning. Give us understanding about what this chapter teaches. Relieve our fears. Reassure us of your sovereignty and confirm with us again that you are indeed with us. I pray this in Christ's name, the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. On Wednesday, I have my day off. This means I have to have the outline by Thursday, and I changed it after it was already in your bulletin. Now, you can can look at this, but I'm going to change it. It's going to be a lot easier. Two things. The relief for your fears and my fears that all of us endure, all of us undergo, they're met in two things. God is sovereign, and he is with you. Not just that he's sovereign over everything and orders all things, because he does, but that's impersonal. He is with you. He's with us as his people, and he's with you individually as a person in Christ. The sovereign God, the great God, the supreme God, who ordains whatsoever comes to pass, is with you personally. When you come to understand this, your fears, all the fears that you face, they'll have relief. And this is the only way you'll see relief, is by first knowing who God is, the sovereign one, and how he is with us, just as he says. And the beauty of this reality is, as we see it expressed in Isaiah, we know where it's finally realized. Emmanuel, who is forecasted already for us in this book, God with us, ultimately realized in the person of Christ, pictured here. Now, there's a picture I like to paint often with you, and it's that picture of a child in a pool with their parent. It's the stage of life I'm in, maybe. But imagine a small child, and dad is over, sitting, on the rec- sitting uh, relaxing on one of the, lo- on the chairs. Imagine that scene. And the little child wants to go into the water, but is scared about going into the water. And the father says, don't worry, I'm, I'm here, I'm with you, I'll, I'll be watching it. The child sees him 65 yards away, and he's thinking to himself, well, that's not exactly with me. I mean, Dad's here, and he, uh, but that's not quite it, and he's, just, he's fearful about going in without Dad being right there. Now, that's a different thing. It's, it's a different thing altogether if the father picks up the child, holds the child, and walks into the deep end of the pool, or the shallow end for that matter, and kind of walks into the deeper end and has both of their heads above water, and he's holding them. The child then feels like not only is Dad in control of this situation, he has me. He's with me two different sets of confidence displayed there. One is fearful for good reason. Maybe dad can't get there in time. Maybe something will happen before he can help me. He's fearful. But no fear if dad's holding me, dad's with me. That's the difference. Dad might be able to get to the kid quick enough. Maybe not. But our God holds us, carries us. In fact, that's the exact metaphor used in chapter 40, that he picks us up like a shepherd and holds us like a lamb. Again, realized ultimately in the great good shepherd, God himself, God the Son, who comes. Ask yourself, what are you fearful of today? Are you fearful about your future? Are you fearful about our nation's future? Are you fearful about your children's future? Do you fear losing your job, not having enough money? Do you fear maybe even a particular person or a situation, a place, Do you fear getting too close to people because you also fear rejection or being let down by somebody? Do you fear failure? Do you fear making commitments that might bind you or bond you? Do you fear sickness? Do you fear pain? Do you fear death? 
being sure of God's control and of his being with us, these are the keys to overcoming fear. This is the resounding message that God gives his people continually so that they can overcome the fear that they are feeling. Knowing God is sovereign and that he is with us, even when things seem bleak, this is what serves to relieve our fears. Let's go back to verse 1 in the passage, chapter 41. And we will see once again reassuring us of his sovereign control, his supremacy over all that comes to pass. And he summons not just his people now, he wants everybody on earth to listen to what he has to say. Verse 1, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. He's not just calling Israel to himself now. He's calling the coastlands. Uh, He's talking what is now modern, wider Europe into the Mediterranean, not just the chosen people of God. He wants the whole earth to hear this message. And he says to them, let them draw near for judgment. He says, let them renew their strength. Do you remember where renew their strength comes from? In the verses that we just studied last week, verse 31. How do we have our strength renewed? By waiting for the Lord, by waiting on the Lord. He's saying to the nations, it's this offer to all that for you to be renewed, you must wait on the Lord. A beautiful extension of this message beyond just Israel, an extension of what was promised to Abraham is now manifested in what is said. It's a summons to the people of the earth, the inhabitants of uh, the western islands and the coasts, the whole continent of Europe, summoning them to hear God's decision, his judgment, to tell them what's true about the world. Now, why is this so important? Why is he saying, come respectfully, I will tell you the way of things, trust in me? Why? Well, there are so many fluctuations in the world scene. I mean, they had just watched Assyria fall. There was Egypt before Assyria, then there's Assyria, now Babylon's rising, Persia's going to come. Now, this is the thing that makes everybody anxious. We even feel it today. We don't feel it as much in our country, although that time may come. But if you're living in Syria right now, you have all sorts of wars going on and forces coming upon you. All sorts of insecurity the world over. You never know who will be the next one to come and conquer and and oppress and, and hurt and harm. That's the apprehension of people the world over. And they're feeling it now as they're Israel. Been, God stayed the hand of Assyria, but now it looks like Babylon's coming. Will they be, they never feel safe. And so God's telling them in the midst of this, you think that all these ruling parties and powers are the ones that are calling the shots. They're the ones you're scared of, but you really shouldn't be. Look what he says in verse 2. Who stirred up one from the east? That's where Babylon came from. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. So there's some conqueror that's coming from the east that's forecasted here and is realized in the time of Persia that the people will be scared of anew. It says in verse 2, he makes them like dust with his sword. This is the conqueror spoken of. Like driven stubble with his bow. Scholars agree that this is a forecast of Cyrus who will come from Persia who will eventually take Babylon. And God is asking through the prophet to the people, who do you think makes these conquerors do what they can do? You're you're scared of the conquerors, but really that's not who you should be worried about. They're not the sovereign ones. Verse 3, this ruler, he pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. 
It seems like he just has the run of the place. Why does he have the run of the place? Why is Cyrus able to do this? Why was Sennacherib able to do it with Assyria? Why was Nebuchadnezzar able to do it uh, with Babylon? Why was Pharaoh before that able to, do, uh, to conquer and take so many lands? Why were all these rulers given this? Verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Hey, nations, you're worried about the wrong thing, the wrong person. Who do you think has done this? Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. So get this straight. God is the only sovereign one. The nations aren't, the rulers aren't, the kings aren't, the prime ministers aren't, the presidents aren't. It's ultimately God who's the sovereign one. And that's the first step in having any real fear relieved is to know that God is sovereign, that he is really the power over all these things. He's the one we should fear. I love what Franz Dalich says in his commentary on this passage. The full meaning of the name Jehovah, which we translate as Lord. The full meaning of the name Jehovah, which is unfolded here, For God is called Jehovah as the absolute I. When he says I, that means there are no other I's that can speak on this level. He's the absolutely free being, pervading all history and yet above all history, as he who is Lord of his own absolute being. So knowing who is in control is baseline for our fears to be relieved in all the ways we are fearful. Mautier says, all the events originate in heaven. All individuals are stirred and guided by the Lord. All empires rise and fall at his direction. There is no other ultimate agent. Such sovereignty, Matir says, I love this, such sovereignty is a pillow fit for the most aching head, a sedative for the most tattered nerves, and a ground for trusting divine promises. We can trust promises because the sovereign one makes them. And he's never let off of this control of his hand upon all things. Now, what's the response when the people hear this declaration about God? If, if I were to go into the public square outside a church and get a, a gathering of people and just start declaring to them what God says here, that God is the sovereign one, God, Yahweh, is the only true and living God, the Holy One of Israel. He is the only God any of us should believe in. He's the only one who is real, who has power, who can do things. What do you think most people would do? They would think I was crazy or they'd walk the other way or they would, do, they would ignore me and just write me off. And that's largely what happens when you make these declarations. Well, what happens here gives us some insight about what goes on when a person hears the declaration of who God really is. Verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. So what do they do? This ruler from Persia is coming. God's declared he's the ruler of all. What do they do? Well, everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. You see what doesn't happen? They don't wait upon the Lord. They turn to each other when they feel desperate, when we feel in trouble, and we try to help. Like the inhabitants of Babel, they built a tower against God. They came together and said, we're not going to spread out. We're going to do what we want and build a tower. And they looked to each other and said, we will be strong. So they create for themselves their own feigned security with each other. And look what else happens. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, says of the, said of the soldering, it is good. They're making an idol. They're actually making an idol together. They're getting together. What do we do in crisis? What do we do? God is the sovereign one. Well, we don't believe that. We'll help ourselves, and we'll start to build something. 
And they strengthen it with nails so it cannot be moved. And they put it down. So they create something they think will be able to help them. We say, how foolish. But understand that this is literal here. But we can see all the ways in which mankind today, when they hear the message of who God is, they don't like that message. Don't tell me God's in control. Don't tell me he's sovereign. So they craft a God of their own making. And they worship that God. And that's why they're always scared. Because that God can't help them. They just made that God. The response to denying God is God is to make up a false God, and they flee to idolatry. When people don't know the true and living God, they scurry about to make a God of their own crafting. They look to each other rather than to God, and the results are always pathetic. What causes us to falter? when we're fearful. Ultimately, it is disbelief in God. Now, hear me out. I know you're saying, well, I I have fear. I believe in God. Absolutely. Christians struggle with this. But on the general, the reason why people disbelieve is they don't accept God as the sovereign one, as the final. Yet, to believe in God means to believe that he is God, that he is in control. That's why A.W. Pink, I quoted it a few weeks ago, and it makes so much sense. He said, to say that God is sovereign is simply to say that God is, in fact, God. If he's not sovereign, he's not God. A non-sovereign God will fail you when you need him the most. So really, to not believe in a sovereign God is to not believe in God. And this is where idolatry comes in. We fill it with other stuff. This is where fear comes in, because ultimately those things can't help us. People who do not believe in God make up their own gods, and we see people doing this. They're confronted with a rising power. They turn to idols. This knowledge of the sovereignty of God is the the basis for which we can start to gain relief from our fear. We have to start there. Denny Burke said, well, the sovereignty of God matters. God sovereignly superintends what happens to us, even when we feel like our world is beginning to fall down around our ears. God is still directing all things after the counsel of his will. We don't have to be afraid or to worry because of this. God is in control no matter what. And that truth makes all the difference in the world in the midst of difficulty. Calvin, when he writes his masterful work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he just lays out what the Bible says about Christianity. And he starts with this descriptor in the beginning. In the opening paragraph, he says, True and sound wisdom consists of two parts— the knowledge of God, and of ourselves. You've got to know who God is first to understand who you are. But he goes on to say, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. When you know who God is, you can understand yourself. When you're confronted with fear, you have to know who God is so you know how you relate then to whatever the situation is. Not only is the knowledge of God of massive importance to the Christian life, it's the chief end of man ultimately. The opening question in our shorter catechism, what is the chief end of man? The answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But man cannot glorify God or enjoy him if he doesn't know God. Man's chief end and calling is to know God. Pink, again, who I've quoted before, was so good on this topic. He said, the truth of God's sovereignty is the foundation of the comfort of the people of God. 
only if we know that God is in control, our God, the God who is our Father for Jesus' sake, can we have the assurance that all is well. If there is some other power in this world besides the almighty power of our God, some power over which God does not have control, we must be fearful and afraid. He says further, the doctrine of God's sovereignty then is no mere metaphysical dogma, something we just want to debate about, which is devoid of practical value, but it is one that is calculated to produce a powerful effect upon Christian character in the daily walk. The doctrine of God's sovereignty lies at the foundation of Christian theology and importance is perhaps second only to the divine inspiration of the scriptures. It is the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth, the sun around which all the lesser orbs are grouped, and he goes on. Knowing God is in control serves to relieve our fears. The Israelites are scared about the future, so God reminds them who is in control. But that's just one aspect of his sovereignty. Here's the thing. He is sovereign, but he's not impersonal. He is very personal. He, by his providence, his sovereignty is lived out, and it's personalized. God didn't just create things and let it run and watches it. He, by the sovereign power of his will, orders all things to come to pass, and he intimately is involved with moving things to the ends that he desires for his glory. So the second part of seeing our fears relieved is to understand what our relationship is with the one who is in control. He is with us, and he is with us by his choice. He provides consolation for us when we hear this message that he is with us. Look at verse 8 as he speaks now personally to his people. But you, he's been speaking to the masses now, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So there's a corporate election reference here where he has called Abraham out of paganism, out of the heathen, to become his child and his friend, his servant. They're all synonymous. Servant's not a negative term here. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, I have picked you, I have elected you, I have chosen you. He's put his electing hand on this nation. And then for that to work on the large scale, he deals with each individual as he calls people, you, to himself. Abraham, you remember how he is called God's friend because he is God's servant and God is using him to create the nation from which Messiah would come where God with us would be fully realized. Verse 9, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. So you may feel like you're cast off. Your situation may be bleak. It may, for all intents and purposes, look like God abandoned you. But he says, I have chosen you and I have not cast you off. Now, that wouldn't matter if it was coming from someone sitting in the lounge chair 65 feet away. But he's carrying us when he says that. God chose the nation of Israel to prosper, to bring forth Messiah. These prophecies about his people are ultimately realized in the only true faithful servant God ever has, Christ. So for us, being in Christ, we have the promises of God effective for us and our corporate preservation. The church will prevail no matter what happens outside the church's walls. Wherever the church is placed, it will prevail. 
God will make it prevail. Now that means it will, it will maintain its identity. It will continue to be clearly the people of God. No matter what persecution befalls, whatever situation may arise, he will not cast off his people. Just as the Old Testament saints trusted in God's sovereignty as the basis for trusting his promises, so we can read this kind of a passage and see how it is fulfilled in Jesus and applied to us. God is sovereign and he is our personal God too. Verse 10. One of those great verses in all of Scripture. We seem to have one of those every chapter in Isaiah. But here's a big one. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Who will do all this? The sovereign, supreme God of the universe is with you. Unless you think this is just some passage we pull out because us Reformed people like to talk about the sovereignty of God all the time. There's a reason we like to talk about it because the Bible talks about it all the time. In fact, if you would just start with every major figure in the scripture, you would see this exact concept. God is sovereign and he's with us. It's not just God's sovereign and there he goes. It's God's sovereign and he graciously chooses to be with us. Remember Abraham when he's called out of the Ur of the Chaldees I referenced earlier. Isaiah references. In Genesis 15, listen to what God says to Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And this is what God said. Notice very closely. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I am God, and I am with you. So Moses, some years later, he's got to lead the people of God out of, out of Egypt. We know Moses' shortcomings. Deuteronomy 31. He's scared of his own people. He's scared of the Egyptians pursuing him. scared of the nations out there. And God comes to Moses and says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Joshua has to take over for Moses. I mean, imagine filling the, the shoes or the sandals of Moses. Imagine that. And here's Joshua. He has to take the reins of leadership from Moses. In the first verses of the book of Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong, courageous, Joshua. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See, this isn't a doctrine, it's just a pet doctrine. It's all over Scripture. God is sovereign and he is with us. King David, for all his many foibles. He pens Psalm 23 by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Why are these verses so comforting? Because they tell us the truth. God is sovereign, and he is with us. David again in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Again in Psalm 118, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And then Jesus comes. The ultimate God is with us. And Joseph, when he finds out Mary is pregnant with child, it's not his child. An angel comes. Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Do not fear, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And guess what? It's Emmanuel. God is with you. Jairus lost a daughter who he thought Jesus could save, but seemed like it wouldn't happen. Jesus was speaking to a crowd, and Jairus was there. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, God with them, Jesus himself, said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Believe in who? Believe in him, God with him. Jesus walking out on the water to the boat of the disciples who were struggling. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he can calm waters. The sovereign one is with us. Upon seeing Jesus at the resurrection... Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And then John, seeing Jesus in the book of Revelation, the opening scene, when I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's the sovereign one. But he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not. I am the first and the last. Does that sound familiar? We just read it in Isaiah about God saying he was the first and the last. Well, God can say that. And God says it here when Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades and I am with you. When studying scripture to understand God, we look for repeating themes, for consistent messages, regular occurrences. Few themes in all of scripture are more pervasive than God's sovereignty coupled with his presence. Why is it that in American evangelicalism, this is kind of seen, that people don't want to talk about it. It's a, it's a debate, they say. It's not a debate in Scripture. It's people don't want to give up some of their autonomy or their perception of it, even Christians. We just don't like that feel of it, even though it's all over every page of Scripture. But when we are fearful, what's the only thing we can hang on for, to? A sovereign God who is with us. John Calvin writes on this section, It's too beautiful for me to even paraphrase. I'm going to read what Calvin said. For I am with thee. This is a solid foundation of confidence. And if it be fixed in our minds, we shall be able to stand firm and unshaken against temptations of every kind. In like manner, when we think that God is absent or doubt whether or not he will be willing to assist us, we are agitated by fear and tossed about amidst many storms of distrust. But if we stand firm on this foundation that he is with us, We shall not be overwhelmed by any assaults or tempests. He continues. And yet the prophet does not mean that believers stand so boldly as to altogether be free and void of fear. But though they are distressed in mind and in various ways are tempted to distrust, they resist with such steadfastness as to secure the victory. How? By nature we are timid and full of distrust. But we must correct that vice by this reflection. God is present with us and takes care of our salvation. God is sovereign and he's with us. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous hand. God is sovereign and he is with you. The rest of the verses unfold by 
displaying what God will do on behalf of his people. There's an immediate fulfillment that happens with the Israelites, and there's a general sense in which it's ultimately fulfilled through the victory in Christ that we have, that we'll see this general victory that God will provide his people and his name in time. Look at verse 11. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. They may seem strong now, but they'll come and go. Remember, the word of God, it lasts forever. Where everything else, it's like chaff, it blows away, it burns. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you will not find them. Verse 12, those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Why? Because, verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. I'm the sovereign one. I can tell you this and you can believe me. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. And that sounds, wow, that's harsh, calling him a worm. Well, it doesn't mean it the way we might read it up the first time. It, it simply is using the metaphor, the same metaphor the psalmist used in Psalm 22. But I am worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. The psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. By worm, we're talking about a helpless one, one who has to be dependent upon help from outside. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I, I am the one who helps you, declares, d- declares the Lord. Who? The Redeemer, your Redeemer, is the Holy One of Israel. He himself will be our Redeemer. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. What's a threshing sledge? Imagine a a platform of wood, like a piece of plywood. Fasten sharp rocks on one side of it. Put the rocks down on some grain that's on a hard surface, and then rake it over the grain, so it breaks up the stalks, if you will, and the seeds are left, and the wind blows away the chaff, but seeds are remaining underneath it. That's a threshing sledge. Behold, I make of you, the people of God, a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth, not worn out because it's been used a long time, it's new. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. I will make of you a victorious people, and we know, realize ultimately in the servant of God, the suffering servant, Jesus himself, who will be victorious in the final, the final coming. And God uses the people of God. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. And I think that there is a definite connection. The people of God, when they are faithful with what God gives them, his word, They have the impact of being a threshing sledge even wherever they're planted. So even though much travail may come upon us, if we're faithful with bringing the word of God to the place we are called, he will use us as a threshing sledge to get rid of the chaff and show forth the wheat. It's always the calling of the church, but ultimately he will bring victory to that in his time. This description of the people of God, is it more of the helpless scene we have from this vision of a worm? Verse 17, when the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the Lord of his, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. E.J. Young says that this is language of severe need. The people are in a condition from which they cannot, by human means, extricate themselves. 
Salvation must come to them from without. God will provide for his people the salvation they need. It says in verse 18, I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. He's going to pour forth water, and water provides life. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. In very interesting verse 19, he gives a vision of these trees that are growing. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. Now, some critics have tried to say this is a different Isaiah writing years ahead of time. He's over in Babylon writing. The problem is all of these trees would have been indigenous to Israel, and the author would know these by sight. This is Isaiah writing from Palestine saying, this is what it'll be like. So when the people in Babylon, who will become Persia, are lost and lonely, he'll say, don't forget, God will restore you to a land that has all this plenty. This picture, it's almost like a Garden of Eden-like restoration. Water and shade are the great needs of the desert, and God will provide them both. So much water that all these trees can grow together in groups. Amazing to think of in the desert. And why does he do all this? Why is he showing this grace to his people? Why is he with his people like this? What's the purpose? Verse 20. That they may see and know, may consider and understand together, that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. God is the one who will make this new heavens and the new earth ultimately. And he's the one doing the work to bring it to this place of restoration. And no one will think for a moment that man did this. All glory will be unto the only one who deserves the glory. He does all this so that people will see and they'll know, that they'll consider, they'll understand together that the earth will no longer be filled with atheists. They'll have to say that God has done this. And all the idols will fall down. That the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. In conclusion, I was trying to think of a way to describe how this works in practical life every day, to know God is sovereign, he's with us. There is no better story that manifests this than the story of the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And it's so vivid in particular. I I love when the, the stories give us this background information, so it's not just me conjecturing. You remember what happens to Joseph. He's one of the younger sons of Jacob, and he's highly favored by Jacob. Uh, But the older brothers don't like that he's highly favored. But it's kind of lost on Joseph a bit, and he comes out a long way from the protection of his father with a special jacket on that basically says, I'm daddy's favorite. And the older brothers say, we're sick of this guy. He's done. Let's kill him. And just just kill an animal, get some blood, and tell dad that he got killed by a wild animal. Be done with this this guy. He's having dreams, telling them how he's going to be over them, which of course come to pass, but they don't like it. And so they throw him into a cistern. A cistern is not a well with water in it. It's a place where you hold water in it. So it is without water. He has nothing he can do. Yet God in his providence works out that these Midianites going to Egypt would come by and they would buy Joseph as a slave. So God is with Joseph and pulls him out of the pit and he goes on with the Midianites and the brothers think we'll never see him again. We tell dad he's dead. Over with. Poor Joseph. I mean, what a circumstance. What a terrible travail. What happens though? Well, it says... Genesis 39, when he goes to the place where he is taken to live as a slave, his master saw, listen to what his master saw, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. The Lord caused him to have this attack laid upon him by his brothers, but the Lord 
made it so that he would survive. The Lord gave him into the Egyptians' hands. The Lord was with him so that the master even saw that this be the case. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all he had. Well, all stories don't end that great. The wife frames Joseph. Potiphar, the master, has to punish Joseph. Throws him in prison. So much for the Lord being with Joseph, right? So much for providence. But it says when he's in prison... The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. The keeper paid no attention to what was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. I mean, these are Egyptians noticing that the Lord is with this guy. Eventually, God releases him from prison by giving him insight to dreams that the Pharaoh, the biggest, the most powerful man on earth at this time, needs interpretation of his dreams, dreams that will tell him what he needs to do to take care of a time of famine. God gives insight to Joseph and he is released because Pharaoh is pleased with what he says. And Pharaoh says to his servants when Joseph gets out, can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God dwells? God's with this guy. Years later, after Joseph is used to store up grain so, that is, so the nations around will come to Egypt to try to survive, Years later, the brothers come, and they don't recognize Joseph, and Joseph doesn't immediately recognize them, but then he does. Chapters later, years later, and his brothers came and fell down before them. Behold, we are your servants. And what is Joseph's interpretation of the whole event and the reason why I bring it to you? God is sovereign. God is with us. What is Joseph's interpretation of the same event? He says, do not fear. Do not fear. Why does Joseph say to the guys that tried to kill him? Do not fear, brothers. Am I in the place of God? God's the sovereign one. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, brothers. It's a beautiful description of a life that has God with him. Now, do you think for a moment, Christian, who's been bought with the blood of Christ, united together with Jesus by a gift of faith he's given you, do you not think that God's with you the same way? Because he is. So when you feel like he's not with you, he's with you. He's always with you. He'll never forsake you. He's the sovereign one, so the promises he makes, we can trust. And he cares, and he's personal, and he's with you. God is sovereign, and he is with us. These two realities are the key ways that our fears are relieved. Are you fearful about your future? Are you fearful about our nation's future? Are you fearful about your children's future? Fearful about losing your job, not having enough money? Do you fear a particular person? Intimacy with other people? Fear failure, commitment, rejection, sickness, pain, death? Knowing that God is sovereign, that he is with you. Present with us even when times seem most bleak. This is what serves to relieve our fears for real. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that you are not only the sovereign God, but you are our God. You are with us. Please send your spirit to confirm the truth of your word in our hearts. Lord, please send any fears that exist in us. Send them to flight as you are with us. We pray this in Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.